0: Welcome to Volume 6 of this Uvula Audio presentation of H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. All Uvula Audio presentations are in the public domain. Your narrator is Craig Nickerson.
1: Still another time have I come to a place where it is very difficult to proceed. I ought to be hardened by this stage but there are some experiences and intimations which scar too deeply to permit of healing, and leave only such an added sensitiveness that memory re-inspires all the original horror. We saw, as I have said, certain obstructions on the polished floor ahead, and I may add that our nostrils were assailed almost simultaneously by a very curious intensification of the strange prevailing feeder now quite plainly mixed with the nameless stench of those others which had gone before us. The light of the second torch left no doubt of what the obstructions were, and we dared approach them only because we could see, even from a distance, that they were quite as past all harming power as had been the six similar specimens unearthed from the monstrous star-mounted graves of poor Lake's camp. They were, indeed, as lacking in completeness as most of those we had unearthed, though it grew plain from the thick, dark green pool gathering around them that their incompleteness was of infinitely greater recency. There seemed to be only four of them, whereas Lake's bulletins would have suggested no less than eight as forming the group which had preceded us. To find them in this state was wholly unexpected and we wondered what sort of monstrous struggle had occurred down here in the dark penguins attacked in a body retaliate savagely with their beaks and our ears now made certain the existence of a rookery far beyond had those others disturbed such a place and aroused murderous pursuit The obstructions did not suggest it, for penguin beaks against the tough tissues Lake had dissected could hardly account for the terrible damage our approaching glance was beginning to make out. Besides, the huge blind birds we had seen appeared to be singularly peaceful. Had there then been a struggle among those others, and were the absolute four responsible? If so, where were they? Were they close at hand and likely to form an immediate menace to us? We glanced anxiously at some of the smooth-floored lateral passages as we continued our slow and frankly reluctant approach. Whatever the conflict was, it had clearly been that which had frightened the penguins into their unaccustomed wandering. It must then have arisen near that faintly heard rookery in the incalculable gulf beyond, since there were no signs that any birds had normally dwelt here. Perhaps, we reflected, there had been a hideous running fight, with the weaker party seeking to get back to the cached sledges when their pursuers finished them. One could picture the demoniac fray between namelessly monstrous entities as it surged out of the black abyss, with great clouds of frantic penguins squawking and scurrying ahead. I say that we approached those sprawling and incomplete obstructions slowly and reluctantly. Would to heaven that we had never approached them at all, but had run back at top speed out of that blasphemous tunnel with the greasily smooth floors and the degenerate murals aping and mocking the things they had superseded. Run back before we had seen what we did see, and before our minds were burned with something which will never let us breathe easily again. Both of our torches were turned on the prostrate objects, so that we soon realized the dominant factor in their incompleteness. mauled, compressed, twisted, and ruptured as they were, their chief common injury was total decapitation. From each one the tentacled starfish head had been removed, and as we drew near we saw that the manner of removal looked more like some hellish tearing or suction than like any ordinary form of cleavage. Their noisome dark green ichor formed a large spreading pool, but its stench was half overshadowed by that newer and stranger stench, here more pungent than at any other point along our route only when we had come very close to the sprawling obstructions could we trace that second unexplainable reader to any immediate source. And the instant we did so, Danforth, remembering certain very vivid sculptures of the old one's history in the Permian age one hundred fifty million years ago, gave vent to a nerve-tortured cry, which echoed hysterically through that vaulted and archaic passage with the evil palimpsest carvings. I came only just short of echoing his cry myself, for I had seen those primal sculptures too, and had shudderingly admired the way the nameless artist had suggested that hideous slime-coating found on certain incomplete and prostrate old ones, those whom the frightful Shoggoths had characteristically slain and sucked to a ghastly headlessness in the great war of resubjugation. They were infamous nightmare-sculptures even when telling of age-old bygone things. For Chagas and their work ought not to be seen by human beings, or portrayed by any beings. The mad author of the Necronomicon had nervously tried to swear that none had been bred on this planet, and that only drugged dreamers had ever conceived them. Formless protoplasm able to mock and reflect all forms and organs and processes Viscous agglutinations of bubbling cells. Rubbery fifteen-foot spheroids infinitely plastic and ductile. Slaves of suggestion. Builders of cities. More and more sullen. More and more intelligent. More and more amphibious. More and more imitative. Great God, what madness made even those blasphemous old ones willing to use and to carve such things... And now, when Danforth and I saw the freshly glistening and reflectively iridescent black slime which clung thickly to those headless bodies, and stank obscenely with that new, unknown odour whose cause only a diseased fancy could envisage, clung to those bodies and sparkled less voluminously on a smooth part of the accursedly re-sculptured wall, in a series of grouped dots, We understood the quality of cosmic fear to its uttermost depths. It was not fear of those four missing others, for all too well did we suspect that they would do no harm again. Poor devils! After all, they were not evil things of their kind. They were the men of another age and another order of being. Nature had played a hellish jest on them, as it will on any others that human madness, callousness, or cruelty may hereafter drag up in that hideously dead or sleeping polar waste. And this was their tragic homecoming. They had not been even savages. For what indeed had they done? That awful awakening in the cold of an unknown epoch, perhaps an attack by the furry, frantically barking quadrupeds, and a day's defense against them, and the equally frantic white simians with the queer wrappings and paraphernalia. Poor Lake, poor Gedney, and poor old ones, scientists to the last. What had they done that we would not have done in their place? God, what intelligence and persistence! What a facing of the incredible, just as those carbon kinsmen and Forbes had faced things only a little less incredible. Radiates, vegetables, monstrosities, star spawn, whatever they had been, they were men. They were men. They had crossed the icy peaks on whose tumbled slopes they had once worshipped and roamed among the tree ferns. They had found their dead city brooding under its curse and had read its carven latter days, as we had done. They had tried to reach their living fellows in fabled depths of blackness they had never seen, and what had they found? All this flashed in unison through the thoughts of Danforth and me, as we looked from those headless slime-coated shapes to the loathsome palimpsest sculptures and the diabolical dot groups of fresh slime on the wall beside them, Looked and understood what must have triumphed and survived down there in the Cyclopean water city of that nighted penguin-fringed abyss, whence even now a sinister curling mist had begun to belch pallidly as if in answer to Danforth's hysterical scream. The shock of recognizing that monstrous slime and headlessness had frozen us into mute, motionless statues. And it is only through later conversations that we have learned of the complete identity of our thoughts at that moment. It seems eons that we stood there, but actually it could not have been more than ten or fifteen seconds. That hateful pallid mist curled forward as if veritably driven by some remoter advancing bulk. And then came a sound which upset much of what we had just decided and in so doing broke the spell and enabled us to run like mad past squawking confused penguins over our former trail back to the city, along ice-sunken megalithic corridors to the great open circle, and up that archaic spiral ramp in a frenzied automatic plunge for the sane outer air and light of day. The new sound, as I have intimated, upset much that we had decided because it was what poor Lake's dissection had led us to attribute to those we had just judged dead. It was, Danforth later told me, precisely what he had caught in infinitely muffled form when at that spot beyond the alley corner above the glacial level, and it certainly had a shocking resemblance to the wind-pipings we had both heard around the lofty mountain caves. At the risk of seeming puerile, I will add another thing, too if only because of the surprising way Danforth's impression chimed with mine. Of course, common reading is what prepared us both to make the interpretation, though Danforth has hinted at queer notions about unsuspected and forbidden sources to which Poe may have had access when writing his Arthur Gordon Pym a century ago. It will be remembered that in that fantastic tale, there was a word of unknown but terrible and prodigious significance connected with the Antarctic, and screamed eternally by the gigantic, spectrally snowy birds of that malign region's core. take a lee lee a lee That, I may admit, is exactly what we had thought we heard conveyed by that sudden sound behind the advancing white mist, that insidious musical piping over a singularly wide range. We were in full flight before three notes or syllables had been uttered, though we knew that the swiftness of the old ones would enable any scream roused and pursuing survivor of the slaughter to overtake us in the moment if we really wished to do so. We had a vague hope, however, that non-aggressive conduct and a display of kindred reason might cause such a being to spare us in case of capture, if only from scientific curiosity. After all, if such a one had nothing to fear for itself, it would have no motive in harming us. Concealment being futile at this juncture, we used our torch for a running glance behind, and perceived that the mist was thinning. Would we see, at last, a complete and living specimen of those others? Again came that insidious musical piping, Tikalili, Tikalili. Then noting that we were actually gaining on our pursuer, it occurred to us that the entity might be wounded. We could take no chances, however, since it was very obviously approaching in answer to Danforth's scream rather than in flight from any other entity. The timing was too close to admit of doubt of the whereabouts of that less conceivable and less mentionable nightmare, that fetid, unglimpsed mountain of slime-spewing protoplasm Whose race had conquered the abyss and sent land pioneers to re carve and squirm through the burrows of the hills, we could form no guess, and it cost us a genuine pang to leave this probably crippled old one, perhaps a lone survivor, to the peril of recapture and a nameless fate. Thank heaven we did not slacken our run. The curling mist had thickened again and was driving ahead with increased speed while the straying penguins in our rear were squawking and screaming and displaying signs of a panic really surprising in view of their relatively minor confusion when we had passed them. Once more came that sinister, wide-ranged piping, Tickle-lee! Tickle-lee! We had been wrong. The thing was not wounded, but had merely paused on encountering the bodies of its fallen kindred and the hellish slime inscription above them. We could never know what that demon message was, but those burials at Lake's camp had shown how much importance the beings attached to their dead. Our recklessly used torch now revealed ahead of us the large open cavern where various ways converged, and we were glad to be leaving those morbid palimpsest sculptures, almost felt even when scarcely seen behind. Another thought which the advent of the cave inspired was the possibility of losing our pursuer at this bewildering focus of large galleries. There were several of the blind albino penguins in the open space, and it seemed clear that their fear of the oncoming entity was extreme to the point of unaccountability. If at that point we dimmed our torch to the very lowest limit of travelling need, keeping it strictly in front of us the frightened squawking motions of the huge birds in the mist might muffle our footfalls, screen our true course, and somehow set up a false lead. Amidst the churning, spiralling fog, the littered and unglistening floor of the main tunnel beyond this point, as differing from the other morbidly polished burrows, could hardly form a highly distinguishing feature. Even so far as we could conjecture for those indicated special senses, which made the old ones partly, though imperfectly independent of light and emergencies. In fact, we were somewhat apprehensive lest we go astray ourselves in our haste, for we had, of course, decided to keep straight on toward the dead city, since the consequences of loss of those unknown foothill honeycombings would be unthinkable. The fact that we survived and emerged is sufficient proof that the thing did take the wrong gallery, while we providentially hit on the right one. The penguins alone could not have saved us, but in conjunction with the mist they seemed to have done so. Only a benign fate kept the curling vapours thick enough at the right moment, for they were constantly shifting and threatening to vanish. Indeed they did lift for a second just before we emerged from the nauseously re-sculptured tunnel into the cave, so that we actually caught one first and only half-glimpse of the oncoming entity as we cast the final desperately fearful glanced backward before dimming the torch and mixing with the penguins in the hope of dodging pursuit. If the fate which screened us was benign, that which gave us the half-glimpse was infinitely the opposite, for to that flash of semi-vision can be traced the full half of the horror which has ever since haunted us. Our exact motive in looking back again was perhaps no more than the immemorial instinct of the pursued to gauge the nature and course of its pursuer, or perhaps it was an automatic attempt to answer a subconscious question raised by one of our senses. In the midst of our flight, with all our faculties centered on the problem of escape, we were in no condition to observe and analyze details. Yet even so our latent brain-cells must have wondered at the message brought them by our nostrils. Afterward we realized what it was, that our retreat from the fetid slime-coating on those headless obstructions, and the coincident approach of the pursuing entity, had not brought us the exchange of stenches which logic called for, in the neighborhood of the prostrate things that new and lately unexplainable feeder had been wholly dominant but by this time it ought to have largely given place to the nameless stench associated with those others. This it had not done, for instead the newer and less bearable smell was now virtually undiluted, and growing more and more poisonously insistent each second. So we glanced back. Simultaneously it would appear, though no doubt the incipient motion of one prompted the imitation of the other, As we did so we flashed both torches full strength of the momentarily thinned mist, either from sheer primitive anxiety to see all we could, or in a less primitive but equally unconscious effort to dazzle the entity before we dimmed our light and dodged among the penguins of the labyrinth centre ahead. Unhappy act! Not Orpheus himself or Lot's wife paid much more dearly for a backward glance and again came that shocking, wide-ranged piping, Tickle-lee, Tickle-lee. I might as well be frank, even if I cannot bear to be quite direct in stating what we saw, though at the time we felt that it was not to be admitted even to each other. No words can even suggest the awfulness of the sight itself, It crippled our consciousness so completely that I wonder we had the residual sense to dim our torches as planned and to strike the right tunnel toward the dead city. Instinct alone must have carried us through, perhaps better than reason could have done. Though if that was what saved us, we paid a high price. Of reason we certainly had little enough left. Danforth was totally unstrung, and the first thing I remember of the rest of the journey was hearing him light-headedly chant an hysterical formula. In which I alone of mankind could have found anything but insane irrelevance. It reverberated in falsetto echoes among the squawks of the penguins, reverberated through the vaultings ahead, and, thank God, through the now empty vaultings behind. He could not have begun it at once, else we would not have been alive and blindly racing I shuddered to think of what a shade of difference in his nervous reactions might have wrought. South Station Under, Washington Under, Park Street Under, Kendall, Central, Harvard. The poor fellow was chanting the familiar stations of the Boston-Cambridge Tunnel that burrowed through our peaceful native soil thousands of miles away in New England. Yet to me the ritual had neither irrelevance nor home-feeling. It had only horror, because I knew unerringly the monstrous, nephendous analogy that had suggested it. We had expected, upon looking back, to see a terrible and incredibly moving entity if the mists were thin enough, but of that entity we had formed a clear idea. What we did see, for the mists were indeed all too malignly thinned, something altogether different, and immeasurably more hideous and detestable. It was the utter, objective embodiment of the fantastic novelist thing that should not be, and its nearest comprehensible analogue is a vast, onrushing subway train, as one sees it from a station platform, the great black front looming colossally out of the infinite subterraneous distance Constellated with strangely colored lights, and filling the prodigious burrow as a piston fills a cylinder. But we were not on a station platform. We were on the track ahead as the nightmare plastic column of fetid black iridescence oozed tightly onward through its fifteen foot sinus, gathering unholy speed and driving before it a spiral rethickening cloud of the pallid abyss vapor. It was a terrible, indescribable thing, vaster than any subway train a shapeless congeries of protoplasmic bubbles, faintly self luminous, and with myriads of temporary eyes forming and unforming as pustules of greenish light all over the tunnel filling front that bore down upon us, crushing the frantic penguins and slithering over the glistening floor that it and its kind had swept so evilly free of all litter, still came that elvish mocking cry, Tickle-lee, tickle-lee, and at last we remembered that the demoniac Shoggoths, given life, thought and plastic organ patterns solely by the old ones, and having no language save that which the dot groups expressed, had likewise no voice save the imitated accents of their bygone masters. Danforth and I have recollections of emerging into the great sculptured hemisphere and of threading our back trail through the Cyclopean rooms and corridors of the dead city. Yet these are purely dream fragments involving no memory of volition, details, or physical exertion. It was as if we floated in a nebulous world or dimension without time, causation, or orientation. The gray half-daylight of the vast circular space sobered us somewhat, but we did not go near those cached sledges or look again at poor Gedney and the dog. They have a strange and titanic mausoleum, and I hope the end of this planet will find them still undisturbed. It was while struggling up the colossal spiral incline that we first felt the terrible fatigue and short breath which our race through the thin plateau air had produced but not even the fear of collapse could make us pause before reaching the normal outer realm of sun and sky. There was something vaguely appropriate about our departure from those buried epochs, for as we wound our panting way up the sixty-foot cylinder of primal masonry, we glimpsed beside us a continuous procession of heroic sculptures and the dead race's early and undecayed technique. A Farewell from the Old Ones, written fifty million years ago. Finally scrambling out at the top we found ourselves on a great mound of tumbled blocks, with the curved walls of higher stonework rising westward and the brooding peaks of the great mountains showing beyond the more crumbled structures toward the east. The low Antarctic sun of midnight peered redly from the southern horizon through rifts in the jagged ruins and the terrible age and deadness of the nightmare city seemed all the starker by contrast with such relatively known and accustomed things as the features of the polar landscape. The sky above was a churning and opalescent mass of tenuous ice-vapors, and the cold clutched at our vitals. Wearily resting the outfit-bags to which we had instinctively clung throughout our desperate flight, we rebuttoned our heavy garments for the stumbling climb, down the mound, and the walk through the eon-old stone maze to the foothills where our aeroplane waited. Of what had set us fleeing from the darkness of earth's secret and archaic gulfs we said nothing at all. In less than a quarter of an hour we had found the steep grade to the foothills, the probable ancient terrace by which we had descended, and could see the dark bulk of our great plain amidst the sparse ruins on the rising slope ahead. Halfway uphill toward our goal we paused for a momentary breathing spell, and turned to look again at the fantastic Paleogene tangle of incredible stone shapes below us, once more outlined mystically against an unknown west. As we did so, we saw that the sky beyond had lost its morning haziness, the restless ice vapors having moved up to the zenith where their mocking outlines seemed to be on the point of settling into some bizarre pattern which they feared to make quite definite or conclusive. There now lay revealed on the ultimate white horizon behind the grotesque city a dim elfin line of pinnacled violet whose needle-pointed heights loomed dreamlike against the beckoning rose-color of the western sky. Up toward this shimmering rim sloped the ancient tableland the depressed course of the bygone river traversing it as an irregular ribbon of shadow. For a second we gasped in the aberration of the scene's unearthly cosmic beauty, and then vague horror began to creep into our souls. For this far violet line could be nothing else than the terrible mountains of the Forbidden Land, highest of Earth's peaks and focus of Earth's evil, Harbourers of nameless horrors and Archean secrets, shunned and prayed to by those who feared to carve their meaning, untrodden by any living thing of earth, but visited by the sinister lightnings and sending strange beams across the plains in the polar night, beyond doubt the unknown archetype of that dreaded Kadath in the cold waste beyond abhorrent leng. Whereof unholy primal legends hint evasively, we were the first human beings ever to see them, and I hope to God we may be the last, if the sculptured maps and pictures in that prehuman city had told truly these cryptic violet mountains could not be much less than three hundred miles away, yet none the less sharply did their dim elfin essence jut above the remote and snowy rim like the serrated edge of a monstrous alien planet about to rise into unaccustomed heavens. Their height, then, must have been tremendous beyond all known comparison. Carrying them up into tenuous atmospheric strata, peopled by such gaseous wraiths as rash flyers have barely lived to whisper of after unexplainable falls... Looking at them, I thought nervously of certain sculptured hints of what the great bygone river had washed down into the city from their accursed slopes, and wondered how much sense and how much folly had lain in the fears of those old ones who carved them so reticently. I recalled how their northerly end must come near the coast at Queen Maryland, or even at that moment Sir Douglas Mawson's expedition was doubtless working less than a thousand miles away and hoped that no evil fate would give Sir Douglas and his men a glimpse of what might lie beyond the protecting coastal range. Such thoughts formed a measure of my overwrought condition at the time, and Danforth seemed to be even worse. Yet long before we had passed the great star-shaped ruin and reached our plain, our fears had become transferred to the lesser but vast enough range whose recrossing lay ahead of us. From these foothills the black, ruin-crusted slopes reared up starkly and hideously against the east, again reminding us of those strange Asian paintings of Nicholas Rorick, and when we thought of the damnable honeycombs inside them, and of the frightful amorphous entities that might have pushed their featedly squirming way even to the topmost hollow pinnacles, we could not face without panic the prospect of again— sailing by those suggestive skyward cave-bounds where the wind made sounds like an evil musical piping over a wide range. To make matters worse, we saw distinct traces of local mist around several of the summits, as poor Lake must have done when he made that early mistake about volcanism, and thought shiveringly of that kindred mist from which we had just escaped, of that and of the blasphemous horror-fostering abyss whence all such vapors came. All was well with the plane, and we clumsily hauled on our heavy flying furs. Danforth got the engine started without trouble, and we made a very smooth takeoff over the nightmare city. Below us the primal cyclopean masonry spread out as it had done when first we saw it, so short yet infinitely long a time ago and we began rising and turning to test the wind for our crossing through the pass. At a very high level there must have been great disturbance, since the ice-dust clouds of the zenith were doing all sorts of fantastic things, but at twenty-four thousand feet the height we needed for the pass we found navigation quite practicable. As we drew close to the jutting peaks, the wind's strange piping again became manifest and I could see Danforth's hands trembling at the controls. Rank amateur that I was, I thought at that moment that I might be a better navigator than he in effecting the dangerous crossing between pinnacles, and when I made motions to change seats and take over his duties he did not protest. I tried to keep all my skill and self-possession about me, and stared at the sector of reddish farthest sky betwixt the walls of the pass, resolutely refusing to pay attention to the puffs of mountaintop vapor, and wishing that I had waxed off ears like Ulysses' men off the Sirens' coast to keep that disturbing wind-piping from my consciousness. But Danforth, released from his piloting and keyed up to a dangerous nervous pitch, could not keep quiet. I felt him turning and wriggling about as he looked back at the terrible receding city. Ahead of the cave-riddled cube barnacle peaks, sidewise at the bleak sea of snowy rampart-strewn foothills and upward at the seething, grotesquely clouded sky. It was then, just as I was trying to steer safely through the pass, that his mad shrieking brought us so close to disaster by shattering my tight hold on myself and causing me to fumble helplessly with the controls for a moment. A second afterward my resolution triumphed and we made the crossing safely." "'Yet I am afraid that Danforth will never be the same again. "'I have said that Danforth refused to tell me "'what final horror made him scream out so insanely. "'A horror which, I feel sadly sure, "'is mainly responsible for his present breakdown. "'We had snatches of shouted conversation "'above the wind's piping and the engine's buzzing "'as we reached the safe side of the range "'and swooped slowly down toward the camp.' but that had mostly to do with the pledges of secrecy we had made as we prepared to leave the Nightmare City. Certain things, we had agreed, were not for people to know and discuss lightly, and I would not speak of them now but for the need of heading off that Stark war expedition and others at any cost. It is absolutely necessary for the peace and safety of mankind that some of Earth's dark, dead corners and unplumbed depths be let alone. Lest sleeping abnormalities wake to resurgent life, and blasphemously surviving nightmares squirm and splash out of their black lairs to newer and wider conquests. All that Danforth has ever hinted is that the final horror was a mirage. It was not, he declares, anything connected with the cubes and caves of echoing vaporous, wormily honeycombed mountains of madness which we crossed, but a single fantastic demoniac glimpse among the churning zenith-clouds of what lay back of those other violet westward mountains which the old ones had shunned and feared. It is very probable that the thing was a sheer delusion born of the previous stresses we had passed through, and of the actual, though unrecognized, mirage of the dead transmontane city experienced near Lake's camp the day before. But it was so real to Danforth that he suffers from it still. He has, on rare occasions, whispered disjointed and irresponsible things about the black pit, the carven rim, the proto the windowless solids with five dimensions, the nameless cylinder, the elder Pharos, Yog sothoth the primal white jelly, the color out of space, the wings, the eyes in darkness, the moon ladder, the original, the eternal, the undying, and other bizarre conceptions. But when he is fully himself, he repudiates all this and attributes it to his curious and macabre reading of earlier years. Danforth, indeed, is known to be among the few who have ever dared go completely through that worm-riddled copy of the Necronomicon kept under lock and key in the college library. The higher sky as we crossed the range was surely vaporous and disturbed enough, and although I did not see the zenith, I can well imagine that its swirls of ice dust may have taken strange forms. Imagination, knowing how vividly distant scenes can sometimes be reflected, refracted, and magnified by such layers of restless cloud, might easily have supplied the rest. And of course Danforth did not hint any of those specific horrors till after his memory had had a chance to draw on his bygone reading. He could never have seen so much in one instantaneous glance. At the time, his shrieks were confined to the repetition of a single mad word of all too obvious source. "Tikili, lee! tikili, lee! Here ends my testament.
0: This is Jim Campanella, your narrator has been Craig Nickerson. We hope that you've enjoyed this UbuLa Audio presentation of At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft. Performance copyright 2010 by UbuLa Audio. The chilling At the Mountains of Madness theme was composed by George Fenton and repurposed from an excellent BBC miniseries called Life in the Freezer, about life in Antarctica. And no, they never mentioned the giant albino penguins, Please feel free to write us and tell us what you think at uvulaaudio at uvulaaudio.com and check out our MySpace page website to contact fellow listeners. You can also become a Facebook fan of Uvula Audio. Just do a search for Uvula Audio on Facebook or do it from the main Uvula Audio webpage. We are listed on Podcast Alley. Feel free to vote for the adult or kids Bookcast so that we can get more listeners. As usual, check out our Cafe Press website for t-shirts, etc. For other Uvula Audio titles, please go to our website at www.uvulaaudio.com. We are listed on iTunes, and you can subscribe and download our podcasts for free from there. If you like our podcast, please feel free to tip us whatever amount you like using the PayPal link. The link is completely secure. We will return the first week of November with the first Pulp Juvenile Story, from the Rick Brandt series started in the late 1940s, The Rocket's Shadow. There has been some controversy as to whom the writer John Blaine of the early stories actually was, but if it was Hal Goodwin, Lester Dent, or someone else, they are still ripping good yarns, and you will enjoy this one. For those of you who were kids of the 1960s or 70s, or more recently fans of the Venture Brothers, Johnny Quest was based on the Rick Brandt stories. After Rick Brandt, we will probably return to a more adult pulp favorite with the second novel in the Richard Henry Benson series of The Avenger, entitled The Yellow Horde. This is a story in which Miss Nellie Gray is introduced. She was Benson's young female assistant who was hell on wheels and an expert in the martial art of Aiki jiu The story is less heart-wrenching than Justice, Inc. and gets right to the action without all that introductory stuff. From all of us at Uvila Audio... We thank you.